This is Letters of Gallipoli, a retelling of the landing at Gallipoli through letters and diary entries written 100 years ago. The proceeds of this podcast go to Legacy, a charity dedicated to the memory and support of Australian military men and women. Episode 8. Caught in the Firing Line The following letter was written by Private Albert William Kewen. He was deployed with the 5th Infantry Battalion that landed at Gallipoli on April the 25th and was part of the second wave of the attack on that fateful morning. Private Kewan penned this letter to a female friend in Victoria as he lay in a hospital bed in Malta, just one of hundreds of Australian diggers. Dear Renee, suspect you have seen the list of casualties long before this reaches you and notice that yours truly got in the way of a bullet. Couldn't help it, really. Didn't see it coming to tell the truth. I had survived a fortnight of the scrapping, including our terrible baptism of fire on the first day we landed, of which, doubtless, you have had the accounts in the paper. This is a day I don't like to talk of yet. The air simply quivered with the rush of shells over our heads. And little fluffy balls of white smoke, like a wad of cotton wool bursting 50 feet or so off the ground, showed where the shrapnel shells with their rain of shot were sweeping the trenches. We advanced in open formation a mile or so forward across deserted fields of grain and open green spaces covered with glorious wildflowers. Poppies, buttercups, marguerites, daisies, irises, and dozens of others I couldn't name making a beautiful scene with a clear blue sky and brilliant sunlight overall. The picture only being marred in places by a dead body here and there. We had seen so many of these that we passed by without comment of any sort, except to remark that it was high time they were buried. About 3.30 or 4, word came to advance, and the 6th and 8th Battalion went forward. There was a perfect hail of bullets hopping round by this time, not directed at us, but at the firing line further in front. Experience has taught us by this time that the firing line is about the safest place of the lot in an action as most of the Turks are such bad shots that the shots go over the firing line but do damage amongst the supports and reserves further back. Indeed, before we had left the shelter of the bed of the creek, a chap alongside me sitting on a bit of dirt suddenly fell forward, without a sound, into the water. Poor bugger. He had got a stray bullet through his head. A few wounded, dead dotted here and there, reminded you that some of the bullets had found their mark. Incidentally, I might put down what I have always felt right through the scrapping. You might see dead plus wounded Turks, English Tommies, Indians, French, and other of the Allied troops lying on the field in their own blood, but nothing moved me more than the sight of an Australian, who was either winged or else had passed in his regimental number, probably because he wore the same uniform as yourself. As soon as you reached the firing line, you fixed your bayonet in readiness for either a plunge against the enemy or to resist one of them, and then took out your entrenching tool to dig yourself in a bit and get under cover. I blazed away a few rounds, and then having nothing to fire at in the way of Turks, the shrapnel keeping their heads down, as the phrase is, started to scrape the dirt up in front of me as a protection. I must have lifted myself up a little from the ground in doing so, for in about three seconds, I felt as if someone had thrown the Melbourne Town Hall at me and hit me in the shoulder and back. The force of the hit pinned me face down in the ground, 
stunned for a few moments. And then when I lifted my head, blood gushed out of my mouth in a stream. As I felt rather painful in the region of the back, I concluded shrapnel had hit me there. I knew by the blood I was hit in the lungs and thought I had thrown a seven and was concluding my career. My first thought was not of home or loved ones, curiously enough, but a sort of peaceful feeling came over me and the thought ran through my mind how easy it is to die. The chap on my right turned me over on my back and took off my wet equipment, meanwhile assuring me that he couldn't see any blood on the back of my tunic, so I knew then it was a bullet and that it had come in the front and gone out the back. The blood had stopped coming out in a stream now, and I was only coughing it up, but the stunned feeling had passed and it began to be painful somewhat. I thought I would have a little revenge if I could, so tried to fire a few last parting shots, but couldn't lift my rifle naturally as my left arm was powerless. By this time I had given up the idea of dying, and thought if I could get back to the cover of the trenches and get my wound dressed, it might be more comfortable than my present position. It was now dark and cloudy, and coming down this little hollow towards which the slowly moving lines of stretches and wounded converged, you saw at first dim lights moving round, lighting up a few faces here and there. But getting closer, you saw lines of men laid out. The majority of them bore their pain stoically, but some poor devils so blown about that you wondered how they existed, moaned for water or to be put out of their agony. A little group round a wounded man, doctors and a couple of orderlies, the temporary blood-soaked bandages tenderly unwrapped and the light of an electric torch on the wound and you turned away with a taste in your mouth. One gets used to seeing blood, but when you see some of the wounds caused by the soft-nosed bullets which those inhuman devils use, you taste blood and long to avenge your fallen comrades with the point of the bayonet. All the inmates of our ward have had their photos taken in a group, and I hope to be able to send you one in my next mail, or probably this one, if it comes along in time. We'll just ask you here in case you see any of my people. Don't let them read this, as the descriptions might be too detailed for them. I just told them I was hit in the shoulder, and that it was a slight wound. So it is, but omitted to say that the bullet touched my lung and smashed my shoulder. You won't enlighten them, will you, René? There's a good girl. Of course, you are welcome to tell them anything else, especially the fact that I am having the time of my life now, with no worries, good food and bed, though whatever romantic ideas I may have had about nurses, army ones I hasten to add, and their soft, soothing presence have been rudely dissipated, for our nurses rush wildly round, tear the bandages off you, rip off the dressing, and do you up again in record time. We'll be getting back into the field again soon, so that letter-writing on my part will be at an end, though not permanently, I hope. And we'll look forward to more of your letters. With best wishes and regards from your old pal, Bert. Don't tell any of my people I wrote so much. Private Albert William Kuhn returned to Australia on November the 19th, 1915. After being discharged from the Australian Imperial Force on May the 25th, 1916, Kewan quickly re-enlisted and worked as a temporary Staff Sergeant Major at an officer training school at Port Melbourne, and later 
as a district area officer for St Kilda. In 1920, Kewan finished his military service and returned to finish his apprenticeship as an architect. Private Albert William Kewan died in 1964. Lest we forget. This concludes Letters of Gallipoli, a retelling of the Anzacs landing at Gallipoli through letters and diary entries written 100 years ago to the day. The proceeds of this podcast go to Legacy, a charity dedicated to the memory and support of Australian military men and women. Find out more at lettersofgallipoli.com.